You're listening to Points in Between. This is episode five, The Great Equalizer. The thing that I think is most different than in American schools is we didn't really have a lot of like standardized testing. Um, Whenever they tested us, you would have to stand up, you would go in front of the class and you would be asked questions and you would have to answer them. But then over there you have like homework like every day piled up. Even on weekend, you got a school Friday, you have Saturday, Sunday, but you got like hella homework to do and then it's like, oh, by the time you're done, it's 8 p.m. Sunday. Oh, I gotta go to bed. I gotta get to school tomorrow. Those were the voices of Selena, who first went to school in Bosnia, and Serafin, whose schooling began in Senegal. Their comments echo a sentiment I heard from a lot of the people I interviewed, and that is, American schools just don't feel that hard. But it's too simplistic to take that perception at face value. At its core, this is about two basic questions. What is the point of educating everyone? And what is the best way to do it? A school system, as an institution, is an embodiment of our often messy and contradictory answers to those two questions. Our debates about the length of the school day, or funding sports facilities, or testing, are all really debates about why schools exist and how they can best fulfill that purpose. If you're a student who only experiences one system of schooling, these larger questions are hard to see behind the day-to-day minutiae of assignments. But if you move from one system to another, the differences can be unsettling. It feels like the rules have changed, and you're right, they have. Mia grew up in China, where access to college is dependent on a single test that comes at the end of high school, the Gaokao. China has a 2,000-year history of using testing as a pathway to political power or economic success. The Gaokao is the modern iteration of that long tradition. In that system, being a good student means developing the skills to excel on that test. I think good student here is is absolutely not the, the type that I was in China, and especially in high school. Um, I think like... Mm, before like learning process means to mean that you just need to practice practice a lot about the um, class class you take mm, exercises you do but now it's like because since I have like different purpose so I'm paying attention to every information that I get no matter from like uh, from textbook class or even the people that I talk with so Mm, now, I don't need that identity to be a good student. Before we started our interview, Mia showed me a PowerPoint presentation on her laptop. It was about how her understanding of education has changed since she came to America. I didn't ask for it. She just wanted me to know. It was sweet. And I asked her more about it during our interview. My religion background is uh, my mom was a my mom is a Christian, and when I was in high school, especially the period of passing the exam, she uh, talked with me a lot. Obviously, I was stressed out. I was had like bad like yeah time, and she just like talked with me and prayed a lot for me, and like told me that God loves you no matter what you do. And because of that, like I think uh, 
my family is quite different from other like traditional Chinese family because my mom uh, don't have much expectation to me. But like when I got into college, I actually I didn't take like Christian or religion seriously. I wanted like uh, solve problems and maybe focus my future. When Mia came to UC Berkeley, immersion in this new system with its new expectations changed her. I think I I couldn't be that person anymore. I was like I was kind of person also like chasing for perfection. Uh, when I was went through the midterm, I I never had the experience of like writing papers. No matter how hard I try, I can't be that like perfect me anymore. So like you know like this is my identity of a good student. The midterm <laughs> broke that identity, and when I was like so weak and uh, like I was cried like to my parents, I also like had homesick. Um, like all emotions just just came together. Um, at this at that time, like my friends, they're Christians. I came a lot of Christian friends that came to me and like tell me like your identity is not like like about school, but also like much more about God, how God sees you. So I remember like how like when I was in high school, my mom told me um, Christianity. So I think I want to get to know more about Christianity, whether I can find my meaning and my identity in Christianity. And I think now, luckily, I'm find it. Uh, I, find, I found it. Mia's inability to be a good student in this new system prompted her to entirely reevaluate the point of education. In any system, the markers for student success are constructed based on that larger underlying purpose for educating people. Change the purpose, and it should follow that teaching methods and evaluations also change. To really consider this, we need to do some historical digging. It's going to get a little long, but trust me, there's a point to it. There have been a lot of changes in American schools, of course, but If you were going to pick one single year to help you make sense of our shared understanding of the purpose of American schools, it would be 1848. The early 1800s were kind of strange by modern standards. If you went to school in the U.S., you've probably heard of abolitionism. But you may not know that the fight to abolish slavery was one of a whole range of movements focused on the moral character of individuals and society. This was the time period that saw the rise of evangelical Christianity and transcendental philosophy. But it's also the time when Sylvester Graham, the inventor of the graham cracker, argued that a diet of bland foods could prevent both cholera and masturbation. The temperance movement suggested that alcohol caused both immorality and poverty. Those are only a few examples of a huge number of social movements at the time. So that's the background. Our year, 1848, was itself momentous. In the West, after defeating Mexico in war, the U.S. added a half million square miles to its territory, along with the non-English-speaking people who lived there. In upstate New York, on the other side of the country, women at the Seneca Falls Convention asserted that women should have the right to vote. Along the eastern seaboard, Irish immigrants escaping the potato famine poured into Boston, New York, Philadelphia, Baltimore. Within two years, these mostly Catholic newcomers would be 25% of the population in those cities. Across the Atlantic, in Europe, 
1848 was also the year that Marx and Engels published the Communist Manifesto. In it, they argued that violent class conflict is one of the unavoidable constants of human history, and they predicted that growing industrialization would eventually lead to revolution and a complete reordering of industrial societies. That same year, 1848, within months of the publication of the Communist Manifesto, on the other side of the Atlantic, Horace Mann delivered his 12th annual report to the Secretary of the Board of Education. Not a very sexy title. Mann was the first secretary of the first state board of education. His state, Massachusetts, was the most industrialized one in the U.S. at the time, though the process was still in its infancy. Massachusetts was also the home of the common school movement, the movement in favor of creating free, compulsory, state-funded public schools. And Mann was its best-known advocate. That 12th annual report wasn't a philosophical reflection of schooling, although it certainly contained some philosophizing. It went to the Massachusetts state legislature. So it was about money. It's basically an argument explaining why tax money should be collected to pay for schools and why students should be required to attend school. In that 1848 document, Mann laid out the arguments that are still, in a lot of ways, at the core of how we think about education in America. And to understand the current student experience in American schools, it helps to know why we have schools. Mann predicted that public school, as an institution, could become, in his words, the most effective and benignant of all the forces of civilization. This is first because of the scale of school's impact, how many people are affected, He said, all the rising generation may be brought within the circle of its reformatory and elevating influences, and also because young people are, in his words, pliant. When you get them young, you can mold them into a greater variety of forms than any other earthly work of the creator. An effective force of civilization isn't just teaching you arithmetic. It's more subtle than that. Consider this example from a 14-year-old. He's been in the U.S. for four years. I, my name is William, and I'm currently living in Houston, and I used to live in London, England. William attended what Americans would call a private school in London. The scope of public schools is obviously far greater, but the practice of inculcating behaviors is the same. There were many entrances. It was sort of a large building, um, but every single day... The headmaster was standing by the gate where you should enter, um, and you had to look him directly in the eye and shake his hand before you were allowed to enter, to, just so you learn how to socially interact with adults better. And I think to this day that helps me. Learning to shake hands with confidence could never be called an academic skill, but you certainly might call it an elevating influence, to use man's words. I asked Angel about writing essays here in California versus the style she was taught in high school back in Taiwan. It's very different is that the English essay requires you to state your opinion in the first sentence and the topic sentence should be really specific and the whole essay should be really logical and understandable. And... Actually, in Chinese, like writing, maybe the 
the topic is about struggling, and you have to write an article about that in Chinese. And like the the English essay, the hook just in the beginning, maybe few sentences, but like in the that the Chinese article is like maybe the whole article are is the hook, and in the in the end of the article. You express your opinion. If you're a student just trying to get a paper written, you might be frustrated by a teacher who says you can't use "I" in a formal essay. You might struggle to articulate your main idea in a single sentence in your first paragraph. But you probably aren't challenging those conventions on the basis that you reject the larger cultural norms you're being forced to model. I think in Chinese society, it's there's more oppression. For you to speak out your opinion in public, if your opinion is different from others, there's not like the American will embrace more diversity of your perspective. But in Chinese society, if you have different opinion or you want to、uh, say something、um, to criticize, you may be a little bit careful. Your wording, you you encounter more、um, pressure to speak out different opinion. I think it's in ge- general is like this, or as in high school. Shiraj commented on a different standard sort of American writing assignment, the research paper. The teacher is giving you two weeks about it, then there should be something really good about it, and I don't know what what should it what what detail. Think should it be because I can write a scene in an hour, but I would always feel like something's missing because like the teacher, why, why would the teacher give me two weeks? Like how you find quotes and then you analyze it. That's never that that's something I never did. But then the good thing here is also they give you many examples like how you do it. But it's just weird because like you get two weeks and I don't know what to do for two weeks about it. Well, I mean, as a teacher, I can tell you that at least a solid week of that, I expected my students to procrastinate and not do anything. But I mean, it was. For doing research and finding new information, there the information is already given to you in India. Like you all, it's like、uh, just write a letter to the editor about about the problem in your society, the, the garbage problem, or maybe le- write a letter, or maybe write an essay about a day in your life. It was very simple, very very realistic. So yeah, here here it's like very detailed. That topic, the research paper, raises another question. Exactly what information and skills should you use this, in man's words, effective and benignant force of civilization to teach, and how? Arts was big. We did a lot of like uh, making, is in Farsi, kardisti, making like a clock or making a house, like building things with cardboards.、Um, I was really good at that. <laughs> My artistics, I always got the highest score in school. You're listening to Roya describing part of her schooling in Afghanistan. So we had physics, we had algebra, we had science.、Uh, the system in Afghanistan with educations it was exposing a lot of、um, subjects early stage that you have like six, seven subjects that you have to know, and each class is like thirty minutes, thirty-five minutes. But then you get exposed to so many different subjects. When Vishnu arrived from India. He encountered a reorganization of subjects he was already familiar with. Like most schools, you only have one science at a time, like one math at a time. In India, it's like you do all the math at the same time, all science at the same time, and it's like you 
begin low at each thing and go up. It's not like you do begin low, go up, begin low, go up again and again. So it's kind of like that. For Juan, who came from El Salvador at age 16, the reorganization of subjects wasn't just curious, it was frustrating. The last math class I took there, I was taking a little bit of trig and uh, pre-calculus with algebra mixed. Yeah. So um, when I came here, I brought my, my uh, school transcript from there, you know, the school was looking at it and was, they're like, pre, uh, let's do pre-algebra. So I took pre-algebra and that was super easy. So like, I moved to algebra. And um, that was kind of easy, so I talked to them and I'm like, okay, let's move you to um, pre-calc. Um, I was understanding some part of it, but after the first week, I was kind of lost. So that's when they told me, okay, let's move you back to algebra, uh, three or four. So I was kind of frustrated because a lot of, most of the things in algebra three or four, I already had taken it there and I was pretty good, but, but I couldn't take up pre-calc because I was kind of lost. When I asked about the differences in skills and expectations between the U.S. and elsewhere, the most common response had to do with math. Jessica and Vishnu both commented on it. What I was learning in sixth grade, I had learned that in third grade. And I was just like, man, why are these people like, not that, not that they're slow, but like, they just like uh, pace them too slow. Like they don't have them like, no, like do this like quick. Like, so as far as education, I think like Mexico is pretty good because like it moves faster. So we had a question on the board saying, you need to like solve this equation or something. I like took a pen and paper, like piece of paper and a pen. I solved it in like a few minutes. The guy next to me had a calculator, kind of like solving in like five minutes. So I still got it first. So people looked at me like I'm totally different because I get there super fast in my head. I kind of felt like it's not that like the math in India is far ahead than this place. It's like I don't know. I just felt like the way we got taught math in India is like more intuitive than just saying this adds to this. Like if you look at something saying like this happens and that happens, you'll see okay, this is this happens in India. It's like why this happens. So I think that helped me a lot. Vishnu also reflected on access to cell phones and how he thinks that has affected the skills students are expected to develop. In class, people would be like, okay, take your cell phone out and tell me what you think. Like, look this guy up. But in India, it's like we didn't have cell phones, so you had to know all the stuff by heart. Like, go online, look it up in your house, and go to school the next day. I feel like some people are totally addicted to technology, like, need it, like, past the class, while some people don't need it. It's just like, it just felt like one half is, like, super smart, other half is, like, kind of lagging, but they still do well in class. It just shows, like, how technology, like, impacted them a lot. When Ruth returned to the U.S. from Mexico, she learned new essay writing skills. But she also noticed some skills and experiences that were missing from her American school. But what we did have in Mexico that I've never witnessed here in the U.S. is oratory contests within the school, within the county, and within the state. And so you would prepare something that you had strong feelings about to argue, and then you had to stand up, memorize it, stand up there, and present it. I remember at least two within the school and then going to other schools because I would win and would have to compete with other local schools. When Ruth won at the local level, she went off to a regional competition. So then we were in the only auditorium in town giving our speeches. The, I feel like it served me really well to be able to, to stand in front of crowds and learn that early on and speak. Ruth's next account is a great example of the way students actually experience schools. Activities can combine skills, culture, and camaraderie all at once. We had a national anthem contest where you would 
you know, and here I am, somebody who's like daughter of <laughs> very radically, you know, learning the ne- Mexican national anthem in all of its like subtlety and deliciousness and traveling by bus with all of my classmates in choir to compete with all of the public schools within Mexico City and, um, you know, feeling just so, so sad when we didn't win the, I don't know what sector, the delegation or something. Were there other songs or was just everyone singing the Mexican anthem? Everyone singing the anthem over and over again, like school after school after school. Do you remember having any kind of like feelings about the meaning of the song in reference to you singing it or your parents commenting on it at all? I don't remember anything of that. I remember, you know, a lot of the language is so archaic or um, poetic or pompous that it's hard to understand some of the lyrics. Like, I remember being very focused on what parts needed to be whispered and what parts needed to be belted out. And a little bit of shame of like my parents knowing that I was going everywhere singing the national anthem. But there was such pride Just in case you missed the first episode about leaving home. My questions about Ruth's parents weren't because she was an American singing the Mexican anthem. I asked because they were in the country as Communist Party organizers, and communist philosophy opposes nationalism. Ruth's stories introduce another theme as well. That's the way schools use competition as a tool to encourage student engagement. Jessica, who also moved from Mexico, and Angel from Taiwan, both explained... Like, I would always like to compete for the first place in class because, like, the way that they have it uh, in Mexico is, like, people, they have always, like, first, second, and third places in every classroom, and they'll just honor them at the end of the year. But that was always, like, something for me. Like, I always wanted to do the competition. So either I always get first or second. And the, the times that I would get second, I would get, like, salty <laughs> because, like, you kind of stay together with the same kids. So you know who who's your competition as you move up in the year. Like, okay, it's this guy, so now I have to beat him next year. So... No, yeah, but that was good. Like, there was always, like, a sense of competition. Yeah. <laughs> you study really hard, and you just study every day, then try to get the highest score in the exam. I think that's the maybe the only criteria for, of a good student. The good students are, the, like, the first in the first place of the class. And you always know who they are? Yeah, you always know. <laughs> yeah, I think the, there's policy change the third year in my high school because a lot of people complain about that. You should not um, show all the students ranking in public. So in my third year, there's like confidential policy. But um, in reality, you still know who's in this first place. Let's go back to the history for a minute. Mann's 1848 document also appealed to people who thought funding schools was a bad investment. He wrote, For the creation of wealth, then, for the existence of a wealthy people and a wealthy nation, intelligence is the grand condition. By intelligence, he meant education. In other words, educated people are productive people. It's hard to be certain exactly what sort of education is going to provide both an elevating influence, as Mann said, and also the knowledge to make people productive. 
The accounts you've heard so far show that there is limited agreement about what students should learn or how they should learn it. Even within a single school, these ideas are in flux. And once you've decided what students should learn, how do you know if they're learning it? And how do you convince them it's worth their effort to try? Looking back again, in 1845, three years before his report, Mann decided to administer a written test to over 500 students in Boston. He wanted to determine whether or not they were learning. He suspected they were not. He got the idea from a trip to Europe. At that time in America, oral tests were the norm. Kids spent a few short hours at school each day, basically memorizing their textbooks. Misbehavior was met with corporal punishment. Students showed what they learned by reciting their texts for the teacher. Basically, those students in Boston bombed that first written test. Mann published the results with critiques and comparisons. Then he used the results to argue for more support and more oversight of schools. It took almost 50 years after that first experiment for written testing to become widespread in American schools. A hundred years after Mann's report, in 1948, the Educational Testing Service was established. That's the outfit that created the SAT. Since that time, our use of standardized testing has only increased. But as with subjects and skills, tests and testing are not the same from place to place. For example, several people had never seen multiple choice tests before coming to the U.S. Here's William. The multiple choice were fairly easy. You'd be given a sheet or something to read off of, and then the answers would be in the text, and you'd just... Answer C is the exact same thing that's written in the text. So that, that, was, that was a bit odd. And it wasn't just the construction of tests that came as a surprise. It was the timing of them and the role they played in classes and grades. I remember the first graded assignment I had was <laughs> something where you were given the test, then you went through it, and then when you were done, you handed it in, and then you looked through your, your notes or whatever, and then you got the test back and was able to like, go, go through it again before you, it was graded. So I, I, <laughs> I was a bit confused at first. It was not what I was used to, getting a second shot in an assignment and getting to look at what was on the test. So that... Yeah, that was new for me. We started midterms and finals at a very young age. Uh, I think year four specifically. Year four is the equivalent of third grade in the U.S. That's when I started having midterms and finals. No multiple choice, all short answer, and there'd be about... It depends on the subject, really. I remember the history midterm was especially hard because there was a really tight time limit and a a lot of questions, and all of them were really deep, and you required deep answers. If we were taking an exam or something, if you were to merely look up at someone, you'd get a demerit, and then like three demerits was a detention, and those demerits carried on for, I think, a month before it reset. Um, so when I came to the United States and I saw someone cheating off someone's paper, I, I would kind of... Uh, 
and make a big fuss out of it. And people called me a snitch for that, but it was just the way I'd been taught. So uh, it, it, it took me a while to set into the relaxed format of testing in the United States. Did you have um, a different amount of homework? Not exactly. Like, so, like, we had the same kind of homework, but in this country, it's like, in the U.S., like, many people, like, look at homework as a way to boost your grade. In India, it's like, the homework doesn't help. It's like, if you do it, it doesn't help you. If you don't do it, it, like, affects you. So, you need to do it anyway. <laughs> Only two tests matter. It's like the end of 10th grade and, like, end of 12th. So, even if you, like, flunk school and, like, get, like, S and all your tests, but do good in these tests, you can be a top in your school. So, does that mean that, like, being good at taking that test is a much bigger part of being a good student there? Yeah, so we didn't have participation, like, that in Madden school. Like, even English and, like, no discussions happens, like, kind of basic. And, like, if you can do good on tests, you're pretty much set for college. Like, the top colleges only take the top 2,000 people who do good on tests. So that's all people wanted. But, like, maybe in the American schools, people participate a lot. People, like, talk a lot in class, try to interact, and, like, go outside the class and make sense. So that didn't exist in India. We'll come back to the topic of testing, but a little detour here. I want to note this mention of class participation. A couple of nights ago, I went to my local city council meeting. Something on the agenda was important to me. And if you've ever been, you more or less know the format. At different points in the meeting, interested members of the public are each allowed to speak for a minute or two minutes about items on the agenda, with pretty broad latitude about what counts as about an item on the agenda. There are all kinds of speakers, and as I listen to everything from impassioned arguments to angry diatribes to meandering philosophical reflections, I thought about Vishnu's comments. Class participation is practice for being a productive team member at a job, but it's also practice for the actual doing of American-style town hall democracy in its most basic sense. And I wondered, as I sat there, if that's why we grade for it if that's why we care about it in school. Anyway, food for thought. Detour over. Back to testing. Just about everyone I spoke with noticed the frequency of testing in the U.S. In their early experience, they generally had fewer exams, but with bigger consequences. Against the systems, education was really tough. So it's, there was basically, if you couldn't pass classes, you go back, you know, and it's, it's just, it was difficult. So it's like the pressure was really hard that you have to sit in, you have to pass these tests. And if you don't pass the test, that means you stay the next year with different kids that you're not even exposed and start the whole year doing, doing the same thing until you pass the classes. And what, do you remember that being common? Like, do you remember a lot of new kids who came from the year before? Or was it once in a while? The statistic, it wasn't a lot, but there was always two or three kids will repeat that, which was um, kind of discouraging for those kids because now they're older kids sitting in the younger classes. I can imagine how tough it would be for them. Other kids would look down on you if you didn't pass. So, I mean, because we had, in my classroom, we had an older girl. She was in our class, but because she didn't pass. So, I mean, we built a bond with her, but it wasn't because we, she wasn't the same group with us to moving forward. Even though Linger lived in the Gambia, her middle school education was aligned with curriculum in the UK in a way that prepared her for something called the IGCSE exam. You can look that up if you're interested. I'll just say, her success on that exam enabled her to go to high school in England, where the community was different, but other things were not. 
It's funny because the teachers were better, but the strategy was still the same. Just cram knowledge into your head and regurgitate it for your A-levels this time, which are the sole definer of getting into college. And that's a really big difference, I think, between the United States and England, because like, for example, I wanted to go to Durham and they were like, okay, to go to Durham, you need two A's and to be on your A-levels. That's it. You write a personal statement and that same personal statement goes to every one of the colleges that you're applying to. They get your predicted grades. So each teacher has to predict a grade for their student. And that is what the um, the colleges get. And so when you're accepted, what they'll say to you is, we conditionally accept you, conditional on you getting your predicted grades. So there's this night in England where everyone gets their A-level results at the same time, at the stroke of midnight. And when you get that, you'll see whether or not you're going to be able to go to this school based on these three grades. In Brazil, Juliana also faced an exam, a college entrance exam called the vestibular. I do remember that the exam was early in the morning and I woke up and my parents, my dad usually he gets way stressed about anything. <laughs> so he was the one who was basically freaking out. I was trying to maintain calm, but he was like, oh, we're gonna be late and all that kind of stuff. And oh, don't eat that, You're good. it's bad for your tummy and all that kind of stuff. Oh, did you bring the water? and? Yeah, he was freaking out, but I was, I was trying to maintain calm. And yeah, he basically drove me and I did the test. And yeah, we, we didn't have any type of break or anything like that, but it was quite stressful. And in the end, you get so tired of it, like any other test. But And then I would just go home and wait for the next day because it's usually two days test, Saturday and Sunday. So... I would try to relax and sleep and, I don't know, play some video games. Brazil has both public and private colleges. But you do want to go to a public college because it's it's not only harder to get in, but it's uh, the education is it's considered... There are some debates over this, but usually it's, it's better because it's free as well, completely free. As Linger noted, the direct relationship between success on a single exam and access to college education is a pretty striking difference between the U.S. and many other countries, especially compared to countries with free or extremely low-cost public colleges. Higher education in the U.S. can be incredibly expensive. It's also impossible to know exactly what you need to do to be admitted to many schools. On the other hand, the U.S. system contains flexibility. As I said earlier in the episode, Mann delivered the 12th annual report to the Board of Education in the same year that the Communist Manifesto was published. Americans were aware of the tumult that was caused by industrialization, and they were worried about it. Mann's last argument here was a direct response to that concern. This is the one that most people know and repeat, even if they don't know where it came from. I'm going to excerpt. First, he says... According to the European theory, men are divided into classes, some to toil and earn, others to seize and enjoy. According to the Massachusetts theory, all are to have an equal chance for earning and equal security in the enjoyment of what they earn. Then he makes this promise. Education, then, beyond all other devices of human origin, is the great equalizer of the conditions of men the balance wheel of the social machinery. And finally, 
If this education should be universal and complete, it would do more than all things else to obliterate factitious distinctions in society. In other words, equal access to education is what gives Americans equal access to opportunity. And equal opportunity will prevent class conflicts by offering a path toward upward mobility. This is appealing. If you're well off, it promises that funding education will promote social stability. And if you're struggling, it promises you can earn more money if you get an education. That's a big promise. And I know this sounds cynical, but it certainly was never clear to me as a teacher how a lesson on, say, the reforms of the 1840s could lift someone out of poverty. I think there are a lot of real, emotional, personal benefits to education. But in this instance, I wonder if the tool doesn't fit the task. Still, we can be hopeful and take it as true. But then we have another question. What if some people have access to better schooling opportunities than others? This is not a problem unique to America. Juan compared what he found in the U.S. to the range of options available in El Salvador. The campuses, definitely, the school campuses are a lot bigger. Uh, uh, down there, only the uh, really rich schools, um, private schools can, you know, have the really nice uh, uh, soccer fields under soccer. Soccer fields or, you know, tennis, whatever sport. Um, of course, the, um, the lower the income, possibilities of a student gets, of course, the resources get smaller. So that that's what I liked about the public schools here, that you, you know, you get more resources from that point of view. Juliana discussed differences within Brazil. In Brazil, private schools, they're considered the best ones because you're basically paying and you see results. Uh, public schools, they're not very good. Uh, you wouldn't necessarily want to go to a public school if you had the choice. and uh, But there are some that are, I would say, okay, now it's getting better, the education, but still you would prefer going to private schools because it's, uh, it's not only safer, but you will learn more. In the U.S., despite the Brown v. Board of Ed decision in 1954 and federal efforts at desegregation in the late 60s and 70s, Racial segregation in public and private schools still persists, and so does unequal access to educational resources. I asked Juliana if anything similar exists in Brazil. In private schools, you do have uh, with lighter skin, but you also do have uh, with a darker skin, a few, not, not a lot, but, but still you can see because Brazil is a very diverse country. It's not very common for you to see like just for instance like white people in one school but you kind of get when you go to public school you can kind of see there are more students of color in public schools than in private. Siobhan comes from a working class family in Wales and her wife is a teacher at a prestigious private school in California. There's a world of difference between those two places. Trying to describe her wife's place of work makes for some interesting conversations. I've tried to tell my parents <laughs> and my sister, and their, and their response is usually, what? Um, the, the, the main thing is um, 
how much money there is to spend on resources and facilities which is obviously attached to the tuition which is also something my my family find extremely difficult to understand like i mean extremely difficult but it's it's the quality of the the sports gyms and the sports fields um that just looks like a health resort or something to me the availability of technology that the that the children can use that the students can use so i know that the school that my wife teaches at has like a maker space where they have a laser cutter um I, they have access to all kinds of computing things but also it's the kinds of classes they can teach so the fact that they can teach some programming and python and javascript and all of this is absolutely that blows my mind um I don't even, I'm not even sure what my high school is teaching in terms of computers, <laughs> maybe how to Google something. Um, so those things. And then lastly, the class sizes. Um, that's That would be difficult for people at home to believe that the class size can be 10 to 15 consistently. In 2017, almost 5.1 million students attended private rather than public K-12 schools in the U.S., that's about 9% of all U.S. students. Many of those schools are religiously affiliated, but plenty are also independent, like the one Siobhan describes here. Under-resourced public schools and well-appointed public schools and private schools like the one Siobhan described are all points along a continuum. And obviously, money has a lot to do with access there. But Siobhan is interested in people's willingness to pay for school not just their ability. The fact that so many people in the US are willing to pay for education is fascinating to me. Um, and that's something I think about a lot. And it came to my mind again because I was just thinking about the, the tuition here. Um, this particular school, I think at the moment is 42,000 a year. I mean, that's absolutely unthinkable to 99% of Brits. Just spending that on education is completely unthinkable. And I, so I think about that a lot and I talk to my wife about it a lot and I do understand that, um, I mean, there are many reasons for it, but one of them, it's clear that the public schools are not as well funded in some cases, but certainly not as well sort of looked after and regulated and kept an eye on. You know, in the UK, the, the reason most people, oh, there's many reasons, but one of the reasons pe most people do not go to private school is because you can rely on your state school to be fine. You know, and, and, and Brits aren't trying to, in some ways we're not trying to excel. We're just trying to be okay. And you can rely on your state school to deliver okay. Um, there are going to be some schools that get into trouble, of course. But, you know, for the most part, parents don't have to worry. So I understand here that there, there can be that worry dependent on where you live. And that's going to make you more willing to spend money. But it takes such a different mental state to be willing to fork out like that. This episode began with two questions that are at the heart of any school system. What is the point of educating everyone? And what is the best way to do it? The episode was framed around some of Horace Mann's arguments in favor of public education because they lie at the core of our understanding of what school is. You heard about ways schools teach cultural norms, facts and skills, differences in how students are assessed, and some thoughts on disparities in access to educational resources. The one thing we didn't talk about at all 
The relationship between students and the people on the other end of that equation, their teachers. Episode six of Points in Between will focus on how teachers and students interact, both here in the U.S. and abroad. Points in Between is a production of the California Global Education Project. I'm Shane Carter. See the Points in Between webpage for additional information about each episode. You can find it at cispisglobal.org. Look under the Resources tab.